Good morning, Central. How are we feeling today? We okay? We awake? I have a request. Jeremy, don't, ru don't run away. My iPad was supposed to be on this, and it is not now. So you have one mission from God to find this. You're like a blues brother. Your mission from God. Look at Pat. Everybody give it up for Pastor Travis. Wait, that's not mine. This isn't mine. I'm just kidding. It is. He was sitting on it. You were keeping it warm for me. I appreciate that. Oh, yay for jokes and church. See how casual we can be up here. Not everything has to be clean and polished. Because we're all messed up, jacked up, shacked up, or locked up in some way, shape, or form, but God isn't. And so how many of you are grateful that God loves us, that he's perfect, and we're all messed up? It's so fun. Uh, like Nick said, by the way, Nick, if he's in here or around, he is, I wish I had Nick's speaking voice. If I ever write a book, I want Nick to narrate it. it was, it's just like, he's awesome. But we're going to jump in and kick off this series, uh, like you heard Nick say. Today we are launching a series called Guardians. Everybody say Guardians on the count of three. One, two, three. And as you can see, we've kind of had a little fun with uh, something in the zeitgeist and the culture, um, being Guardians. If you're a Marvel fan, Guardians of the Galaxy has another movie coming out. I'm a big Marvel fan. Uh, I enjoy most of those movies. That is not official central church endorsement. It's just my uh, film taste. Uh, just have to clear that up. Okay, some of you are like, no, Marvel's the devil. Uh, okay. Um, but anyways, Guardians, we're not guarding the galaxy. We're, we're going to talk about what it means to be a guardian, specifically in the context of two letters, two books, First and Second Timothy. Over the next six weeks, we are going to go chapter by chapter through First Timothy. And then the uh, following four weeks, we're going to go through Second Timothy. How many of you love Scripture? You love God's Word? Yeah! Woo! I love it. I love being a part of a church that just knows the power of Scripture, that looks into it. And I love being a church that deploys the teaching methods that Jesus did. Jesus would often teach topically. He would say the kingdom of God. He would teach about the kingdom, and he would use different illustrations and different metaphors and different similes. And then sometimes he would teach exegetically. He would open up the scrolls and teach through the Torah. We do the same thing. We just came out of a series called Rhythm, where we topically taught about healthy rhythms that we can deploy this year, one of which being spending time in Scripture. And it's no coincidence that as a church, after we talk about these healthy rhythms, like rest and routine of prayer and restraint and getting in Scripture, that now we are offering our church an opportunity to exercise what we just learned. And so for the next six slash ten weeks, we are going to do a deep dive into First and Second Timothy. And I don't know if you caught what Nick said, but our lead pastor, Pastor Craig Reese, um, I said this before, but it still baffles me. He writes um, like companion guides and commentaries on books of the Bible for fun. Thank you. Those of you that laughed at that, that's me. I'm like, really? How, anybody else, you just write commentaries on scripture for fun? Any super spiritual? Okay, yeah, Craig's the only one, right? I'm really grateful that our lead pastor knows scripture and loves scripture that much. And as we were preparing for this, I've always wanted to do a study of First and Second Timothy. I think it's a great leadership study. I think it's a great evangelism study, a great church study, a great ministry study. We're going to dig into that in a second. But as I was discussing it, he was like, oh, yeah, I wrote a companion guide for that a while back. I was like, who does that? And so what we did is we took this in-depth companion guide he wrote, wrote and we branded it with Guardians. We've lined it up with the series, and you can download that. So if you love Scripture, I would highly recommend utilize that tool. You can download it. You can print it out yourself and fill it out, or you can do it digitally, just, you know, whatever you need to do. But again, we take Scripture so seriously here, and our roles as the leaders in the church or as the pastors, the Bible says one of our main objectives, one of our main jobs is to equip the saints 
for the work of the ministry. Some of you are like the saints, like St. Saint Paul, St. Saint Thomas. Saint, no, no, no. If you've said yes to Jesus, you're a saint. Somebody say, I'm a saint. Right? It don't feel right. We're like, no, but I'm messed up. But God sees you as a saint. And our job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. This is one of the ways we do that. So if you've come to church a lot and you're like, oh, man, what was with like Christmas at the movies and Silent Disco Night, which, by the way, was awesome. But um, if you're like, oh, what's with all the creativity? Don't worry. We combine creativity with intentionality and point it right at Jesus and Scripture. So that's what we're doing through this series. I would highly recommend you utilize that tool. And with all that being said, okay, let me breathe. With all that being said, we're going to jump into like a foundational message today. Next week, Pastor Craig is going to open up 1 Timothy chapter 1. And every week we're going to cover each chapter in sequence, in sequential order. But today I kind of just get to lay the foundation in the context of why this matters to us in southwest Michigan today or wherever you're watching online. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. For I love seeing people move when I say that. Thank you. For, or if you have a smartphone, you can open it up, open the YouVersion Bible app, scroll down. YouVersion Bible, it is a free app with I don't know how many translations of the Word of God, Travis, Chris. I don't know how many, like thousands. Isn't that amazing? What Christians died for and fought wild beasts for in the Colosseum, we pull out and have like thousands of translations now. We're so spoiled. But anyways, uh, pull that out. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we have a theme verse for this entire series. But before I read it, I do want to point out one more thing, one more quick PSA. In two weeks, somebody say two weeks. two weeks. In two weeks, we have the honor and privilege of all travel and everything works out and weather works out. Pastor Peter Machenko, who is the lead pastor of Preo Church, Transformation Church in Kiev, Ukraine, who we have partnered with for years. Pastor Peter is planning to be here with us in person. And I'm going to interview him as a part of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so if you care about what is happening in Ukraine, if you care about our churches over there, if you want an update, if you want to deep dive in that, I would highly encourage you, do not miss church in two weeks. And if anything, just come and show some love for Peter and the people of our church in Ukraine. It's going to be a powerful time. I can't wait for you guys to hear from him directly. And again, keep in prayer that all travel and everything works out. But that's going to be a great time to get updated on what we've been a part of and what God's been doing in Kiev, Ukraine. And two weeks. Side note, speaking of Kiev, Ukraine, um, I don't know if y'all saw the electric player, not this one, who's one of our regulars, but the one over there, his name's Dennis. Dennis is actually from Transformation Church in Kiev, Ukraine. He's one of the families that we helped facilitate get here when the war broke out. And he got here and he was like, hey, I serve at Transformation Church. I play guitar. Can y'all need me to play guitar? And they were like, yeah, and he's incredible. So can we give him a hand just for like plopping down? And I love that a guy that's like coming here on refugee status and has so many worries and so many things to work on and finding a job and feeding his family and all that, he prioritizes using his gifts to serve the Lord. And I think God's going to bless him for that. So Dennis, if you're listening in the back, we love you. Pastor Peter, we love you if you're watching online. We can't wait to see you. With all that being said, First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. This is our main verse for today. Because you may be asking, why did we call this series Guardians? Well, here's the answer. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, writes Paul, guard the deposit entrusted to you. One of the very last things he writes in his first letter to Timothy is Tim. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now, 
when you read anything in Scripture, you should stop and ask as many questions as you can. And when I read that, the three questions that come to mind is, what's the deposit, who entrusted it, and what does it mean to guard it? What is this deposit that Tim has? Who gave it to him? Who entrusted it to him? And what does it actually mean to guard it? Because again, this is our frame for the next six to ten weeks. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. And if Paul wrote it to Timothy, you can take that and transfer it to your own life. This is a word from God for us in this season. Guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. Now, before we dig into and really kind of like take apart that verse and jump into it, one of my favorite things about Central and our Water's Edge family of churches is we have people that have grown up in church. They were born on the seventh pew on the left. You know all the signals. You speak all the Christianese. And when I drop words like Paul and Timothy and guard and deposit, you're all going, check, 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 check. I know exactly what we're talking about. But my favorite thing or one of my favorite things about our church and our family of churches is we have people day in and day out in person and watch online that did not grow up in church, that do not know the moves, that do not speak Christianese. We have people from agnostic and atheist backgrounds, Buddhist and Islamic backgrounds. And if you are here today watching online or in person and that is you, can I just say we love you. You are welcome. You're not just welcome. You're wanted. And we are really glad you're here. And I'm going to sound like a broken record. Yeah, we can give them a round of applause. But I want to remind us, you do not have to believe what we believe to belong here. You do not. You are welcome to come hang out with us as much as you want. And I commend you for your bravery and courage. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but the mere fact that you would come here, not, maybe not believe in what we believe and you're just checking it out, that says you are a very intelligent person, a very smart person. And our prayer is that you would encounter the same God that we've been singing about and the same God that we know and that God would change your life the way he's changed our lives. But because we have people like that, I don't want to take that for granted. So I want to give us some context of First and Second Timothy, why it matters and how it relates to us in these next few months. So the first thing when it comes to context, I thought about starting with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, but I don't have five hours. So just suffice it to say, since the creation of man, all of the Old Testament, if you have a Bible, the first two thirds, all of it is like pointing. It's like a road sign. All of the Old Testament is showing us how much God loves us, even though we're all really messed up and that he is sending a way for us to be forgiven and reconciled in him. And all of the Old Testament has these prophecies. The Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming. Fast forward to the New Testament. New Testament starts with Matthew. You have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All those are, we like spiritualize those. We call them books of the Bible. They're not books. They're letters. These are letters, these are tweets, these are Instagram posts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four guys that followed around the Messiah, the Christ, this guy that was doing amazing things, and they just sent out on the social media of their day everything they heard Jesus say and everything they saw Jesus do because it changed their lives, it changed the culture's life, and it literally changed every human being's life because today is 2023 because a man named Jesus was born, died on a cross, and rose from the grave, and it literally split our timeline in half. It kills me when people are like, I don't know if Jesus is real. I'm like, you know what year it is? It's all because of him. It literally, he changed everything. And, and, and so that happened. And then Jesus does what he says he's going to do. And, and he dies on the cross. 
for the forgiveness of our sins. And then he raises from the grave, proving that sin and death have no hold on him. And if we put our faith in him, it has no hold on us. We are set free in Jesus. And then Jesus looks at his followers, yes, the 12, and also the other men and women that followed him. And he gave them a commission, the great commission. Go therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Why do I point that out? Because many of us, sometimes we wake up and we're like, God, what do I do with my life? Right? I don't know what to do. I've said this before, but I just want to remind somebody. God put this on my heart this morning, and maybe it's just for one person. And you're just kind of, you find yourself wondering. You're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what job to take. I don't, know where, I don't even know where to go for lunch. Like, I just don't know what to do. I had a pastor tell me one time, when you don't know what to do, do the last thing God told you to do. Anybody being like, God, what should I do? And he's like, the last thing I told you. When you do that, I'll tell you the next thing, right? But in that moment, I looked at my pastor and I said, what if I don't know the last thing God told me to do? And he goes, well, you know your default, right? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, you're trying to act spiritual in church. You're like, Jesus. Um, and he goes, well, you've said yes to Jesus, so your default's the Great Commission. Go therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always. And he said, your default, if you don't know what to do on Tuesday, make disciples. If you don't know what to do on Thursday, make disciples. If you don't know what to do on a Saturday, make disciples. And this was a pastor that got all up in your chili if you said you love Jesus. Because he looked at me and said, so Corey, how many disciples have you made this year? How's that for a pastor, right? Just straight call me out. And then he looked at me. It wasn't metaphorical or rhetorical. He was like, how many? And I'd been following Jesus for a couple decades. And I was like, ah, maybe like 0.5. And he was like, sounds like you know what you should do. Right? It's amazing. And then out of doing that, out of starting a small group and trying to get some of these, like, you know, theta guy, like all these fraternity guys to Jesus, out of that opened up doors and opened up opportunities. And like a decade and a half later, here I am standing on this stage. It's amazing what happens when we just do what we know to do, a.k.a. make disciples. And so Jesus commissioned his disciples to do to others what he did to them. And then you have the 11, and then it takes us to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, again, it's the life of Jesus. The book of Acts is the fifth book, the fifth letter of the New Testament. And the book of Acts literally is exactly that. It is the acts of the early church and the followers of Jesus. And so you have the gathering of the followers of Jesus the day of Pentecost when Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. You know it was a bad thing for us if Jesus stayed? Isn't that weird? A lot of people don't say that. We're like, Jesus, come. And Jesus was like, it's not good if I stay. I am bound by flesh, but rather I am sending one more powerful than me. He is the Holy Spirit, and he is not bound by space and time. And he can fill any and all of you with his presence and his spirit and his power if you just say yes and believe and follow me. And so the Spirit came, and it filled the disciples, and they started preaching and teaching God's word, and it went off. The church was born, and that's why we're here today. And a part of this there was the 12th man, the 12th disciple. His name was Saul. And Saul had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changed his life. A lot of people think that changed his name. Because when I say Saul, some of you are like, what? Saul is the apostle Paul, right? And for some reason we teach, or I've heard it said that like when 
when Saul encountered Jesus, it was such a radical encounter that Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul. That's actually not true at all. The Bible refers to him as Saul multiple times after his encounter with Jesus. Saul was his Jewish name, and it was very common for Jews to have a nickname or another name when they were interacting with Romans. So he was Saul to the Jews, and he was Paul to the Greeks and Romans. Make sense? And since Paul's main commission was to go to the Gentiles, in other words, the non-Jews, it makes sense that he went by Paul most of the time instead of Saul. Everybody learned something today? Some of us like, I had no idea, right? We just spiritualized it. We're like, name change, because back in Abram and Abraham, but that was not the case with Saul and Paul. It was actually him being strategic. Be all things to all people. Romans understood Paul better, so he went by Paul. So anyways, you are loving this, right? Seminary. <laughs> I love you too. Thank you for sitting up front, by the way. And so Paul starts his missionary journey. He gets saved, he gets encountered, he goes around to the disciples, gets affirmed, and then he starts trying to fulfill the Great Commission. You know, the Bible tells us to go with our faith from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That, that's how our faith works. Our Jerusalem is Holland. And, and so if you're a disciple of Christ, we should first be thinking, how are we serving and reaching Holland? Jerusalem, Judea, what is Judea? Judea would be like Ottawa County or like our, our, the greater surrounding area. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, a place they didn't really like that much in the beginning. So like Grand Rapids. And so we go, no, I'm just kidding. I love GR. And, and so like Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Holland, Ottawa County, Grand Rapids, and then to the ends of the earth. That, that side note, why I love our Water's Edge family of churches. Did you know if you serve here, if you pray here, if you give here, you are living out the Great Commission just by your participate, well, how do you say that? Participation? What she said, participation. Yes, okay, there we go. By participating in this church, you are fulfilling that to a degree. Because when you serve here, when you pray here, when you give here, you are impacting Holland through our outreach partners, through the ministry that we do here, opening our doors and going out of our doors. You are impacting Southwest Michigan through four local churches, Central, LifeBridge Church in South Haven, Overflow Church in Benton Harbor, and the local church in Grand Rapids, all of which we get to partner with and support. So you're doing Jerusalem, you're doing Judea, you're doing Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, because we have nine churches across the U.S. and nine locations around the world. Sometimes we just don't, like, yeah, yay, no, that's amazing. It's okay. I know you're all stunned. That's why you're not clapping. But it, it's such a big deal that we get to fulfill this, that we get to do what Paul did, that we get to do what the disciples did in a big way. And, and so that takes us to Paul's missionary journey. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his journey, and this, this is all setting up First and Second Timothy. In Acts chapter 16, Paul meets a grandma, and it changes everything. Some of you grandmamas in the house, you're like, that's right, respect, right? He meets, a, he meets a grandma named Lois, and Lois has a daughter named Eunice, and Eunice has a son named Timothy. And Paul is struck by the faith of Grandmama Lois, and then he meets Grandmama Lois' daughter, Mama Eunice, and he's like, you raised a godly daughter. And then he meets Mama Eunice's son, 16-year-old Timmy. And it says in Acts chapter 16 that Paul saw something special in Timothy. And I don't have time to really soapbox it the way I want to, but can I just briefly say there is power in generational blessing? What if the most important thing you do for the kingdom of God 
is raise a godly child who raises a godly grandchild. I wonder if Grandmama Lois even had the thought in her mind that 2,000 years later we'd be talking about her grandchild. Some of you today, you're going, God, what am I doing for your kingdom? I feel like I'm not doing enough. Maybe just raising your baby in the right way to believe in Jesus, to put their faith in God, and they will raise their child. Our spiritual legacy makes more of an impact than you can ever imagine. And as I say that, some of you are like, Cord, my my parents were heathens. (laughs) You can be the start of that spiritual legacy. You can break the curse, the generational curse, and you can start the generational blessing in your family. Just never underestimate the impact it can have raising a godly child and raising a child in a godly household. Side note, just another caveat there, Eunice's uh, husband was a Greek guy. We, we hear he was, her, Timothy's father was Greek. In other words, perhaps Timothy's father didn't even believe in Jesus. Some of us may have gotten married before we were Christ followers, and in the context of marriage, we've given our lives to Christ, but our spouse still isn't there yet. God can move and work in your family, in your kids' lives, even when the whole home isn't united yet. Keep praying for them, keep serving them, and watch God reveal himself to them. And so this is the context. Paul shows up, he meets Lois, he meets Eunice in Acts chapter 16, and then he meets Timothy, and then he goes on his missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul strolls up to Ephesus. Now, why is Ephesus important? Ephesus is the context to which the letters 1 and 2 Timothy were received. So Paul goes on a missionary journey, and he goes to Ephesus, and he stays there for two years. And he stays there for two years, and this is what he does. He plants the gospel and builds a church. And I say that strategically. Uh, one of the, my favorite things I've learned from Pastor Craig is we don't plant churches. Now, I'm not trying to play semantics, and I'm not hating on any church planting networks. But biblically speaking, we plant the gospel. We plant the seed of the gospel. We water the seed of the gospel. We harvest the gospel, and Jesus builds his church. The way to really build a church, the way to plant a church, is to just plant the gospel, water the gospel, and harvest the gospel. And Paul does this for two years straight in Ephesus, and it is not a cakewalk. How do we know that? Because 1 Corinthians 15.32, Paul writes this, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? You thought persecution was bad in Holland. You imagine loving Jesus in a place where the... Result for that was they sicked wild animals on you. How many of you would go back to that city and be like, all right, let me try again, right? And Paul lived there for two years. When I, when I read sentences like that, guys, it makes me so grateful. Men and women of the faith upon whose shoulders we stand on today, many of which were burned alive at the stake, many of which were fed to lions in the Colosseum, many of which were hiding the letters and the parchment of Scripture in their homes, facing the penalty of death. Also today, we can come in here with air conditioning and cushy seats and sing nice songs and say we're related to believers like that. Now, that's not to make us feel guilty. That's to make us feel grateful. And Paul was one of those who faced trial after trial. Even in Ephesus, he faced wild animals. They sicked on him. But that, that takes us to Ephesus. Now, now, today, guys, it's a little bit different message. I'm trying my best to put on my academia hat, to teach today, to give us context. And if I'm being honest, I'm not good at this. So thanks for hanging in there with me. 
But Ephesus, if we're going to kind of jump in academically, it's important to know what Ephesus is like. One of the historians wrote this, Ephesus was a giant amongst first century cities. It, had, it was a crossroads of civilization, and it was the supreme metropolis of Asia. It was a chief commercial center for West Asia Minor. In other words, business was booming. The economy was huge. It had a major harbor, and roads connected it to other cities. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but a harbor back in that day meant you had goods coming in. It meant you had people coming in. It meant you had cultures coming in. And roadways meant that not only could supplies come in, but they could be distributed, import and export. This was massive. Side note, and this is just a weird tangent I'll go off on for two seconds. Did you ever or have you ever stopped and asked the question, why did Jesus come on the scene when he did? Why didn't Jesus show up a thousand years sooner? Well, why didn't he show up today, right? One Instagram post, everybody believe in Jesus, right? Like, this is me on water. And they would be like, we'd all be like, that's fake, right? <laughs> but why did he show up? I think this is why. Because there was an invention that had never existed before. A way to connect information from city to city to country to country that had never existed. Jesus showed up right after the majority of the Roman roads were built. And the roads connecting cities and cultures in that expanse and to that degree had never existed. So is it any surprise that as soon as the majority of the known world could have information disseminated to them that could change their lives, that that's exactly when Jesus stepped on the scene? It's as if the information superhighway of the internet, this was the predecessor to that. And Ephesus was a part of that network. It was a massive part of that network. And it said it was on a harbor. It was on a water's edge. Because usually cities on harbors, especially in that day and time, were super influential. Side note, many of our church partners around the world, there's a reason outside of Joshua chapter 3 that we call our network of churches water's edge. It's because there's a lot of influence for the kingdom of God when you find influential cities on the water's edge. We're in Lima, Peru. Like Lima, Peru is one of the most influential cities in an entire continent. Over 12, 14 million people live in that city. And we have a church for the kingdom of God that we support right there in that harbor city. We're in Indonesia, in Jakarta, in one of the most influential countries in an island in Southeast Asia. We're in Phnom Penh. Some of you are like, how does Holland fit into that? There's a lake nearby. It works. But like... But there's something about these cities on, a water, on water's edge that God uses to influence regions and countries. And this one was no different. So it was a chief commercial center. It had a major harbor. One of my favorite like nuances that we can still see today, it had an amphitheater that sat over 50,000 people while Paul was there. Now when I say that, 50,000 people, some of you are like, oh, that's cool. You know, like the Detroit Lions Stadium. I think that's like 40,000. The Ephesus Amphitheater back in Paul's time sat 50,000 people. Not that one, the other one, the big one. Now, we're looking at that and we're like, that's cool. Can I just make a point? This is before sound amplification. This is before microphones and speakers. So that meant two things. One, the engineers had to be so sophisticated to create acoustical treatment out of stone that could carry one person's voice to 50,000. That's amazing scientific advancement at that day and time. That's amazing engineering. On top of that, it says something to the gifts of the Bible. Second tangent, I'll go on for a second. It, what that means is in order to get a message across you had to have supreme vocal ability. 
a lot of us, when we read the Gospels and we hear Jesus preached, we imagine Jesus was like this, because we imagine like soft, gentle Jesus. We imagine Jesus is like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's not how he talked. How do we know that? Because he was on a hillside and there were thousands of people and there were no microphones. So that means most of Jesus' sermons sounded like this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And he would project so that people could hear. I genuinely believe that the biblical gift of preaching, prophecy, evangelism, and teaching had as much to do with theological astuteness as it did the ability to have volume. They had to say it with energy and passion and volume. Side note, if you check it out, Ephesians chapter 4, it breaks down the five leadership gifts of the church. Easy acronym, APEPT, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Those are the five gifts that are supposed to lead every healthy ministry. But today, we just group them all up into pastor and we're like, do it all, right? Do all of them. Can I, can I have a confession this morning, Hayden? I'm just going to confess. We'll see if y'all fire me after this. I don't think I'm a good pastor. Some of you are like, oh, Corey, you're great. No, no, here's what I mean. Like, the, the actual gift, uh, again, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, those are the five-fold giftings that should be represented in a healthy church leadership culture. Pastor means shepherd. In other words, it's like the gift of a counselor. It's the gift that, you know when like you're hurting and that person, like Mike McKay is really good at it, one of our pastors on staff. Can we give a hand for Mike? He's awesome. You can sit with Mike. You can cry with Mike. You can tell him all your woes and Mike will hug you and listen to you and be kind with you and I won't. Um, no, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is I will, I will, I will. But it drains me so much. It does. I honestly believe my actual gifting is more apostolic and prophetic. Apostolic does not mean I believe I'm an apostle. The apostolic gifting, if you are an entrepreneur, that, that's like an apostolic gifting. It means someone that you send out to take new ground and will go where other people won't go and break new ground for the kingdom. That's what the apostles did. And so what would happen is you would send an apostle out like Paul and he would go into Ephesus and then you would send an evangelist. And Paul was also an evangelist. So the apostle comes out and makes relationships and makes strategy. Then the evangelist comes and shares the gospel and people get saved. Then you would send a teacher and a teacher would break down the scripture and teach you the word of God. And then a pastor would come and counsel the people as they're going through hard times. And then the prophet, prophet doesn't mean to tell the truth or to tell the future. Prophecy means to proclaim truth. And so then the prophet would come, and they're the ones that would kind of keep everybody in line. It's I think I'm more apostolic and prophetic. Prophecy is also like it would be congruent with preaching. Preaching is to proclaim truth. I think I'm more of a preacher than a teacher. Don't you? Some of you are like, dude, what does this have to do with me? You more than likely have one of those five gifts. And it's important to know. So you can, like, I, sur I know pastoring, I can do it, but it, it exhausts me. So any ministry position I've ever in, I find people that are really gifted pastors, and I get them around me. And when someone's like, Corey, will you counsel me? And I'm like, yes, by telling you he's better than me. And I'll send you to them. And then I'll proclaim the truth of God. Right now I really will meet with you. But... <laughs> But here Paul would sit and he would project and he had this voice and he was in the amphitheater. The other thing Ephesus had was the temple of Artemis. Uh, the Greek version would be Diana. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's an incredible work of architecture and it's still there today. You can visit it. Side note, Ephesus was actually the, the home of Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
The Apostle John actually took care of Mary till she died, and she died in Ephesus. You can still visit her home today. Many a pope have actually preached from Mary's home right there in Ephesus. So this was an important city, but not only was it just this big commercial booming city, not only was it this cultural hotspot, but I mentioned the Temple of Artemis. See, I wrote it this way in my notes. Ephesus was a commercial hotspot, a cultural melting pot, but they were morally bankrupt. Because many of their temples, like that temple, the way you would worship is with temple prostitutes. In other words, sex slavery and sex trafficking ran rampant in Ephesus. On top of that, idol worship. On top of that, all sorts of other practices that I won't get into because we have younger people in the room. But Ephesus was a commercial hotspot, a cultural melting pot, but morally bankrupt. Can you think of a place today that is a cultural hotspot, has people from all different backgrounds. Like Ephesus would have Jewish people, they'd have Romans, they'd have Greeks, they'd have Africans coming into the port, they had Asians, they had all these different cultures. Can you think of a place today that has a bunch of different cultures? Is it is a cultural hotspot? Can you think of a place today that is an economic booming center of the world? And can you think of a place today that is teetering on moral bankruptcy? See, the reason First and Second Timothy are relevant to us today is because Ephesus is a great metaphor for America. We find ourselves almost in the exact same situation as this city. And Paul writes to his protege who is pastoring the church at Ephesus. And so that takes us in Acts chapter 19. Paul pastors there for two years, and then he leaves Timothy. Short version, Timothy 16, Paul goes on a missionary journey. He plants that church. He comes back. He snags Timothy. Then Timothy follows Paul for 21 years. It says Paul discipled Timothy. I don't have time to break this down, but could I just maybe, could I I challenge our modern-day definition of discipleship? Thank you, Hayden. (laughs) Like, discipleship today is like I listen to their podcast, I catch a YouTube video, I come and maybe worship with them and we get a coffee once a week maybe. Maybe. Discipleship back then was I'm packing up my stuff and I'm following you for 21 years. I want to talk the way you talk. I want to walk the way you walk. I want to write the way you write. I want to follow you as you follow Jesus. One of the things I asked in the first service As we look at this over the next few weeks, a question we should consistently ask ourselves. If you're a Christ follower, who is your Timothy? Who who are you pouring your life into? Saying, follow me as I follow Christ. If you are a Christ follower, who is your Paul? Who are you saying, I got your back. Where you go, I go. Where you go, I go. Y'all remember that song, right? Like, who, who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy? Are we being discipled? And are we making disciples, not converts, disciples? Big difference. Anyways, don't have a lot of time left, so we'll we'll wrap up here. Paul takes them on this 21-year missionary journey. And then in 64 AD, they come to Ephesus. Paul sees the state of the church he planted in one of the most influential cities in that day and time. And then he then takes 35-year-old Timothy, and he says, you are now the pastor of one of our most influential churches. Good luck, and Paul leaves. (laughs) Side note, another sign of a good leader is they're okay to step away. A sign of good leadership is if everything goes well when you're not there. 
sign of healthy leadership is what it looks like when you're not there. Sign of healthy parenting is how your kids act when you're not there. Some of you are like, oh, Jesus, right? It's okay, there's time. A sign, I said this in the first service. A sign of a healthy student ministry is yes, if your students follow Jesus in middle school and high school, but a really a healthy sign is when the student goes away to college, do they follow Jesus? What happens when we're not there? Paul trusts Timothy. He leaves the church to Timothy. And then he catches wind that other philosophies are getting in. Then he catches wind that people are gossiping. Then he catches wind that people are complaining about the wrong things. And he writes 1 Timothy. And then later he writes 2 Timothy to encourage and strengthen Tim as he's leading in Ephesus. And as we dig into 1 and 2 Timothy, I think it could truly change the trajectory of our 2023 if we remember Ephesus equals America. And as Paul writes to Timothy, how does it relate to your and my life? So that takes us to the end of our time today. I think even as, as we approach the end here, I think about the end of the church of Ephesus. You know, it, it actually shows up in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses seven churches, the church of seven different cities. Side note, I don't have time to get into that. Isn't it interesting when you read Revelation, God references the church of a city? He doesn't call out First Baptist Church of Ephesus, Second Wesleyan Church of Ephesus. He says the church of Ephesus. What if God looks at the church in Holland as the church in Holland? In other words, all the churches combined. How are we doing? We working together, we loving each other, we serving each other. God sees the church of a city. That's why we all get to work and love together. That's why we're known by our love. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus says to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, 4, you have left your first love. In other words, they maintained the law but lost the spirit of the law. Their actions were there, but there was no heart. So in First and Second Timothy, we get a snapshot of how this really messed up church was still in love with the right thing. But somehow they lost that and they became a church that were doing the right things but had lost their heart. The reason we want to study First and Second Timothy is because we don't want to lose the heart of God. We don't want to get so caught up in rules and regulations and systems and traditions that we miss the heart of the Father. And I think we can find the heart of the Father in the writings of Paul to Timothy. And that takes us back to the verse we started with. This series called Guardians is out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. And Paul says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So what's the deposit? What was deposited in Timothy? Well, you could argue resources. People help pay and finance for his ministry journey. That's a, that's a deposit. You could say time. Time was deposited in him a lot of time, right? But ultimately the deposit was the gospel. It was the truth of the way of Jesus. Jesus' whole message is the kingdom is here and let me show you what it looks like. And if you want to touch eternity, this side of it, follow the way of Jesus. Early Christians didn't call it the church or Christianity. They called it the way. It was like the Mandalorian. This is the way. Like that's what the early church said. Thank you for the two of you that giggled at that. I appreciate you. But that's what the early church sounded like. This is the way. This is the way. And, and Timothy, the deposit was the way. The deposit was the gospel. Do you have the deposit today? Do we have it? 
And then it says it was entrusted. Who entrusted it to him? Well, you could argue Paul, right? Paul took him around and invested him. You could argue Eunice or Lois, his mother or grandmother entrusted it. There was spiritual legacy there. But ultimately, who entrusts us with the deposit of the gospel? It's God. And that word is massive. The fact that God trusts us shows you how much he thinks of you. Today, God trusts you with your household. God trusts you with your cul-de-sac. God trusts you with your neighborhood. God trusts you with Holland. God trusts you with your workplace. He trusts you. Guard the deposit, the gospel that was entrusted to you by God. And that brings us to where we'll land today. What does it mean to guard? Guardians of the deposit entrusted to us. Now, when I say guard, when I say guardians, a lot of us have this idea of like a defensive posture. Like, keep out. No, right? But that's not what it meant. In the Greek there, another translation would be like, watch, be aware, and move forward. To guard means to watch, to be aware, and move forward. To guard means to watch, be aware, and move forward. Um, not too long ago in a church I, I, I preached at, I got to meet a guy who was a retired Secret Service member. Um, you know, bodyguard for the president, right? He was a guard. And he taught me, he said, Corey, have you ever seen, he asked me this question, he said, Corey, have you ever seen a Secret Service member without his sunglasses on? I thought about it. And I was like, no, I haven't. He goes, you want to know why? I said, why? He goes, because if you were to lift up those sunglasses, this is what their eyes look like. He said their eyes are constantly moving, checking exits, looking at the people, thinking through entrance and exit strategies. They are watching consistently because they are a guard, they are aware, and what do they do? They don't circle up around the White House and go, President, you can never leave. The point of a guard is to watch, be aware, and move forward, right? Some of you that didn't connect. Think of like football, like American football. Any football fans in the house? Woo, okay. A lot of us are like, not this year, no. <laughs> right? But think of football, like not the defense, they don't guard anything. Who guards? Think of like an offensive lineman, right? What does an offensive lineman do? The gospel that was entrusted to the quarterback said, hut, right? Sorry, just sports metaphor. But, and then what does a good lineman do? Sometimes they just stand up and there's no linebacker. There's no safety. There's no defensive lineman coming. And what do they do? They watch. They're aware. Other times the play's coming their way. What do they do? Hut, we got the deposit to guard it. Means I watch, I pick up a block, and I move forward. Right? A good offensive line moves the ball forward. To guard the deposit entrusted to you means to be watchful, to be aware, but to move forward. I'll give you one more. Because as you can tell, I'm not a Secret Service member, and I definitely wasn't an offensive lineman. <laughs> some of you laughed at that, and some of you didn't. I don't know how to take either of those reactions. But, but I did play basketball. Some of you are like, all right, yeah, right, bro. No, I did. I did. And uh, I think I have, do I have a ball up here? Yeah, here we go. Y'all give a hand to my man. That was a nice pass. Appreciate you. Yeah. Here's how we'll wrap it up. My position in basketball was the point guard. And as I was thinking about this verse, guard the deposit entrusted to you. I thought, well, I was a point guard. The point of a point guard was to guard. And a good point guard, I started thinking about the attributes of a good point guard. And I was like, well, a good point guard does what? They protect the ball and they move forward, right? 
But a good point guard doesn't look down at the floor. If you're just looking down at the floor, you can't see where the ball needs to go. You can't see the goal. You can't see your teammates. A good point guard has to protect the ball and look up, right, and be able to move and keep the ball moving forward. But, but what happened to me often in basketball is the same thing that happens to me often spiritually in life. See, I'm what you would call vertically challenged. And, um, and, and so an easy thing for the defense or the opponent to do in basketball was this thing called a trap. And so I have some, I have some defense. Um, okay, Y'all give a hand to our amazing musicians and now my defense. So you guys, for this illustration, represent the devil. And uh, <laughs> so, so what would happen in basketball is the ball would get passed to me at the point guard, and all of a sudden the, the defense would send a trap, which looked like this. This was my entire basketball career, by the way. I said this in the first service. Y'all's deodorant is doing great. This is awesome. Um, and, and see, your natural instinct in basketball, when the trap comes, is to do what? Is to take the deposit, to take the ball, and to protect it. And so what do you do in basketball if you're not trained? You, you give in to your feelings and your instincts, and you go, no, 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 no. You can't take it. No, 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 right? And what happens? You run out of time. You lose the ball. You don't move it forward. So what they teach you to do in basketball is go against your feelings, go against your instinct. When the defense comes and you feel trapped, instead of curling down and protecting, what they teach you to do is to secure the ball, hold it tight. Then they teach you to get big, stand up, elbows out. And then they teach you this incredible move. It's called a pivot. Everybody say pivot. And what a pivot means is you're facing the past. You're facing where you came from. You're facing the defense where they're going. And instead of looking back, instead of being afraid, you secure the ball. You rise up and then you change directions. And by changing directions, you create space and then you move forward. That's the role of a point guard. And I got to thinking about it. In life. God passes us the ball of the gospel. We get the deposit. The enemy comes in different ways. And many of us today are like this. Uh, just, just, just hold on a little longer. And today I think God is calling us to guard the deposit he entrusted to us. In other words, secure the gospel. Know what we believe. Stand up and stand strong and stop facing the past. Stop looking back at your mistakes. Stop living in shame and rather rise up and do that Christianese word. Repent. What all that means is change directions. Today we pivot, we create space, and we move forward guarding the deposit that was entrusted to us. Here's my point. Y'all give them a hand. They're awesome. Here's my point, Central. I think God's going to do a lot over the next six to ten weeks as we study this. I would encourage you. It takes maybe like 15 minutes to listen to all of 1 Timothy. It's really short. Just six chapters. But I would just ask us today to like consecrate ourselves, to get ready. To do what we need to do to be ready to receive all that God has for us in the next few weeks. So do you have the deposit? Do you have the gospel? Have you said yes to Jesus? That's the best decision you can make this year. For many of us, we got the deposit. We got the gospel. But I would ask today, since God has entrusted you with this, are you cowering at your workplace? Are we cowering in our homes? Or today, could today be a day where we take these last few moments and we say, you know what, God? Thank you for the deposit. I'm proud of it. 
I'm staying tall. But God, my emotional life, my relational life, my financial life, I have been looking and going the wrong way. But today, I'm going to pivot. And I'm going to commit to doing every area of my life your way. Because you trust me with something so important, so powerful. And it changed my life. And it can change the lives of everyone around me. Thank you, God, that we get to guard the deposit that was entrusted to us. Central family, can we stand together? And as we sing this last song, I would just ask you to pray this prayer. God, search my heart anywhere where I need to pivot. Will you make it clear to me? And thank you for the deposit you have put in me. It's always Jesus. It's only Jesus. And it is because of Jesus that we study, we step into this scripture ahead. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you existed. Thank you that you made disciples that made disciples. Thank you for the countless shoulders we stand on today. And God, what you inspired Paul to write to Timothy, we receive today. Help us, God, to be guardians of the deposit you have entrusted with Central, with each and every one of us not defensive, not overly protective, stiff-arming people, but rather lovingly running at our communities with the beautiful message that you are madly in love with them. Father, as we sing this last song, I pray that it would just be a filter for our head and hearts. If there's anywhere that we need to pivot and turn back to you, may this be the moment we do so. We love you, Jesus. In your name we sing. Amen.